darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. In the final episode of Season 2, Michael and I reflect back on our favorite episodes from this batch, from Crowley's introduction to the Book of the Law, Liber Reguli, Frater Ahad's Liber 31, and portions of the Equinox of the Gods in the Ahad books, QBL, and the Egyptian Revival. We'll also respond to some of the comments we've received and speculate on where this project might take us in the future. And hell, why not throw a rant or two into the bargain? The thing I the thing I liked the other one with, about the other check in we did was how kind of lazy and sleepy it was. Yeah, well, I thought you were sort and, of keeping know, it down so you could keep from disturbing really, anyone or something like that. But uh. I don't know what it was. I was in I was in that office that I was renting for a while to do ma- just to do magic in, and mm. uh, ah. um, and I I think because of the I had so much of me in the cans, mm. I was uh, o- over worried about the quality of my voice, and I was just trying to sound like whisper sexy. You know? i'm obligated by law to check in and let you know from time to time that this call costs 99 cents per minute so (laughs) um yeah anyway that's there's another song starting you want to keep going let's do it (laughs) do it that will should be the whole law love is the law love under will welcome back this is uh for our final episode of the season our check-in episode we're, yeah, we're, che- we're checking in. Uh, I'm all pissed off, so let's start with this. It'll, I, you know, you, you can cut this up however you want. <laughs> we'll we ride in, do it in on this pissed off energy. Yeah. But uh, but it set us up n- nicely tonally for the rest of the thing. I uh, have been. Li- I listened back to the first four episodes, including the last check-in episode of our of our season. So basically, the the Crowley portion, the intro to the Book of the Law, uh, the chapter. Seven chapter yeah, eight of, of Equinox, Equinox of, the of the Gods, and uh, the the commentary on Liber V, uh, Liber Five Vel Reguli, mm-hmm. however, however you want to say it. Uh, Which and, I pissily uh, uh, corrected people on calling it Liber yeah, V. Yeah, <laughs> now I'm going to make the same mistake. <laughs> Look, uh, credulity, incredulity, skepticism is important in Thelema. We want to be skeptical about stuff and uh in including being skeptical of official narratives government narratives historical narratives and even uh crowley narratives the 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 crowley narratives but bringing bringing your skepticism to the table around the, the the core narrative does not give you permission to just assert what other random crap (laughs) <laughs> that your you know your own pet theory in a credulous way in an unskeptical way mm-hmm. uh, you, the the thing I like about the conspiracy theory people and I 
was very interested in conspiracy theories for a long time, is the way they keep questions alive. You know, even when everyone in the mainstream is on the same page, like there's academic certainty about how the pyramids were constructed, they're going to keep telling you nobody really knows how the pyramids were constructed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that doesn't mean it was aliens. (laughs) (laughs) And so if... uh, you know, Crowley tells the story of the reception of the Book of the Law at least three times. He tells it in the uh, Temple of the Solomon the King. He tells it in the Equinox of the Gods. He tells it again in the Confessions, I'm pretty sure, because uh, how could you not yeah. include that? And uh, and uh, there may be contradictions between those three tellings, you know, the as you retell a story, your memory, uh, there's more opportunities for errors to creep in. And then this next time you retell that story, those errors get reinforced. You, you don't remember the event. You remember the last time you told the story. I mm-hmm. promise this is how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this happens both through time, throughout history. Uh, you know, a hundred years on from now, we'll be repeating errors 50 years, 200 years on, which is why historians love primary sources. They want to read the texts, hopefully written by people who were there, eyewitness accounts and the accounts of those who knew eyewitnesses very closely. The earlier we can get, the better. That's that's why they were so excited about finding that. They were so excited about finding that diary that Jesus wrote. Uh, really clarified yeah. a lot of <laughs> <laughs> yeah which we can unskeptically un- accept as being <laughs> absolutely authentic uh, uh, I'm so I feel like I'm not letting you get a word in edgewise here but I'm really on a tear uh, so you know the probably the earliest one of those three accounts is the most accurate what that would probably be the one in Temple of Solomon the King but then Temple of Solomon the King is quoted heavily in the equinox of the gods. So we know he's not relying on his memory. He's going back and referring to his old material all the time to try and reinforce the most accurate version of the story. And, you know, we know Crowley lies about stuff. And people mm-hmm. can say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Uh, I don't think it's that extraordinary that a person had a vocal hallucination during a magical ritual. That doesn't seem like, you know, walking on water to me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you want to think of that as an extraordinary claim, maybe the eyewitness evidence of the person making the claim is not good enough evidence. But then you throw out the whole story. <laughs> you know, you, you can't then, you know, make subtle revisions based on your own uh, hy- hypotheses. It's more likely that the story of the reception is completely made up than it is that Rose Kelly was in the room. Mm-hmm. Because zero of our primary sources are, you know, uh, other than Crowley's. We only have one eyewitness account. And that's Crowley's eyewitness account. Even if Rose was in the room, she didn't leave an account. So we have two eyewitnesses, <laughs> one eyewitness account. I'm glad I we got to this people, point, uh, just because I'm glad you're clarifying that this is what you're pissed off about. Just that I know it's not like, <laughs> you're not pissed off at me for... <laughs> oh, I'm so mad at you right now. I'm just sitting here laughing so- and, and smiling and going along with it, waiting for you to be like, so fuck you, fuck the horse you <laughs> rode in on. <laughs> yeah, how... Yes. Yeah, so, so, and I've asked people who matter, you know, do we have Rose's diaries from the period? Mm-hmm. And they avoid the question. Uh-huh. Uh, 
So, which leaves the window open. Oh, maybe I do have good evidence for my claim. Mm -hmm. They don't. Because if, <laughs> if they say no, <laughs> if they, if, if, you know, if they avoid the question, then it leaves me to wonder. If they say no, because if, if it was yes, they would just say yes. You know what? Uh, this is, uh, I've been, you know, as usual, occasionally I'll be watching um, some scientist on YouTube or whatever. Uh, and I say, I, I don't want that to come off as dismissive. I, I don't mean some scientist as, you know, some fuckhead. <laughs> I mean, like, legitimately, like, uh, legitimate scientists who are speaking legitimately on important subjects and that sort of thing. Uh, and one of the things that pops up from time to time, I think I referenced this in one of our uh, recent discussions. The one that I just watched that wouldn't have been referenced... Uh, was a kind of um, discussion on multiverses and uh, mm -hmm. the uh, the legitimate science behind it or the legitimate science against it and that sort of thing. So they had three people talking, one of which was Roger Penrose, the other two of which are just scientists. <laughs> I don't, I, you know, you can only go with the rock star scientists in terms of remembering their names, but um, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but, you don't um, need to know the cinematographer's name. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, uh, so we have these three scientists, one of which is pretty much trying to put forward the idea of multiverses as a legitimate part of our modern uh, science, and the other two of which, uh, including Roger Penrose, are fostering a healthy skepticism about the subject. Uh, I won't say that they were dismissive of it. They didn't. They clearly weren't siding with multiverses, but they mm. they were they were skeptical. Uh, and the I the, there was a woman who was skeptical, and she was she put it really well uh, in the sense that the i the the way that she was seeing it is like you 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 don't want to just buy into these things. And the the problem that uh, a lot of the multiverse people that she would she knew um the problem that they would tend to fall into is that they would see evidence for the math that they're using uh in the real world but they they would be like corroborating certain aspects of the math so they would therefore take it as all of the math is correct uh and i think this is a uh, one of the reasons that one of the things that you can fall into and the the guy that's uh, supporting the multiverse thing everything he was saying at least to the point in the discussion that I got to, was what I constantly seem to be seeing with these kinds of things, where it's exactly what you're talking about. Somebody with a pet theory who's finding, you know, cherry-picking the things that they that is in support of it. But more importantly, um, what he's doing is he's, he's, like, just focusing on the open possibility that these things could exist, these other multiverses and that sort of thing. So he's trying to that he's not actually giving you proof of anything, any sort, of course, because they don't have any proof. But he's trying to um, point out the places where it's uh, still open to being possible, which is a different thing than proof. Uh, it's uh, this is this is not only the fault of the skeptic. This is also the fault of the rabid defender of the of the official narrative, mm -hmm. right? Salima is Salima uh, is skeptical about democracy. We're not sure mm -hmm. the democratic government is the best form, um, uh, and I think Crowley had opinions about that that you know kind of go mostly unstated. At somewhere he says, "I have no time at all to write about politics," uh, but when you start 
laying out for people the 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 criticisms of democracy the retort is always show me a better solution exactly yeah you know and so if you don't have a multiverse theory in your back pocket to come out and start swinging with people think they you know it's like well you know if our if the evidence doesn't point in our direction where do you think it points to yeah it's like none of my business yeah none of my business where it actually points to <laughs> my job is to critique your bullshit math yeah you're uh, you're lying <laughs> i don't have to know what the truth is to know you're lying yeah that's the problem it's it's not it's uh it's not like you have to be one or the other it's again this binary kind of mentality about like it either either um is one thing or the other the fact of us being able to constantly question the going narrative doesn't mean that we have to replace it with a different narrative it just means that we're able to question it and we're able to play with other possibilities we can hold things in place tangentially because they have explanatory force and then revise later on when we get a better idea. Exactly. Uh, and this is very scary in, in, in the sciences because when something has explanatory force, you build a lot on it. Mm -hmm. And and to see a, a you know a, a line of research crumble like a house of cards, you know people might defend. It's like oh this has to be true because it supports you know a good five percent of everything we believe about X topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if it supports a good five percent of everything you believe about X topic, then you're probably right. And if you're wrong, the new variation is not going to send your dominoes tumbling yeah. like a house of dominoes <laughs> <laughs> Be careful about mixing uh, your metaphors there <laughs> uh, i i um uh have i have you know let's talk about predestination just for a second and then we'll go back to the other thing i'm angry about uh but uh it, effects have causes and those effects are the causes of subsequent effects and sure, people make choices, but those choices are um, informed by experience. So we, we kind of know there was only ever one history because we can observe that and say some things are wrong and some things are right. I'm of the belief that there's only one possible future, that we live in a radically determined uh, universe. And, and Crowley talks about true will as destiny, but I'm more... I'm more radical on this point than he is. He sort of has a wishy-washy Star Wars idea of destiny, where mm -hmm. you know you have some choice about how you uh, fulfill it, whether you kill the Emperor or Lord Vader is up to you. <laughs> um, but uh, um, but for me, the thing I wanted to say is that the Enochian spirits insist that I'm wrong about this. Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 they tell me, <laughs> that there's at least one more world that's as real as this one. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, talk about your high quality evidence. <laughs> <laughs> and undermining your pet theory. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna mail that into the scientific community. What's their PO box? <laughs> um, they have a few PO boxes, but uh, they're in, uh, depends on which universe you're speaking from, I suppose. The argument goes like this, as far as I understand it. Rose Kelly made corrections to the Book of the Law. How could she have made corrections if she wasn't in the room? 
any valid correction would be her hearing Iowa's say something Crowley didn't hear Iowa's say. We know there's she made corrections because in the manuscript, a few small places, it's her handwriting. Crowley explains this. He says that later on, you know, realizing he had made a mistake, they did some ritual work together. She channeled Iowa's and Iowa's made those corrections. Mm -hmm. If you believe in magic, it's not mysterious because, you know, the the spirit just came back and re-explained himself. If you don't believe in magic, it's not mysterious because, you know, you can imagine that uh, Crowley just hallucinated the whole thing and then asked, you know, felt bad about part of his hallucination. And since Rose was part of his psychosis, uh, when he asked her what would be better, he believed her. If you think the whole thing was made up, <laughs> then it then it becomes a little harder because why would a guy forge a document and then ask his wife to forge another paragraph? So the corrections, you yeah. know, might even might even mean that the story is that that there's some plausibility to the story. They don't do anything to suggest that Rose was there also hearing Iowa speak. Uh, and they don't say, it, you know, that she dictated the book of the law. You know, she has no other writings that we're that we're yeah. aware of. You know, it's uh, well, you know, um, there's uh, uh, in that particular paper in the Equinox of the Gods. I think in chapter seven as well. There's a note, I believe, that uh, he Crowley's referring to the uh, psychological model, and he's mm -hmm. saying that you can pretty much he's invoking Occam's razor, although he doesn't. He's not referencing it as that it's like a reference to somebody else who was also credited for the same sort of idea or something like that i can't remember the name of him but um occam's razor if it's uh simpler just to cut out or if this other information doesn't really affect things you can cut it out but uh, in this case he's invoking the sense of it's much simpler to think of it as he's dealing with a separate entity rather than it being his own psychology his own unconscious or whatnot and in this case we it's the same thing if you try to invoke the idea that rose kelly was more involved in the sense of being in the room and being the one to dictate it or you know whatever whatever other involvement they're trying to do that becomes more complicated in order to make that uh work so what it's just explaining the obscure by the more obscure. Whether yeah. you think a demon dictated it, or an angel dictated it, or an uh, alien dictated it, or the subconscious mind dictated it, we don't have none of those words mean anything. Yeah, subconscious mind sort of has a scientific truthiness, like it sounds like something a psychologist might say. But it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. To suggest that your subconscious mind, the part of your mind you can't hear, is <laughs> dictating to you, doesn't mean anything. It's true. It's it's <laughs> All it does is it gives you a pacifying conception of how things could have gone so that you can make yourself feel comfortable about knowing the truth behind it. Which is one of the problems that I have with conspiracy theories, for instance, because I feel like that's a big part of what goes on, is when you don't understand things like how the pyramids got there and how, you know, how these ancient peoples could have done that, you fill in the blanks by coming up with a, a way that it could have happened that pleases your rationality, your conception, and that way you feel 
like you've got that resolved. The idea of not being able to actually fill in the blanks, not actually being able to reach out and find that answer is very unsettling. Maybe Rose Kelly dictated the Book of the Law. Maybe the Book of the Law was not received on the date that it claims to have been received. Uh, that's another Mm-hmm. Pet theory that I've heard that from is people. April Fool's maybe, Day, or yeah, may, maybe. Uh, well, that because the equinox did not happen on that day, then twenty-two days from the actual date of the equinox would be a different day. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, or maybe, um, maybe the Book of the Law wasn't received in the hotel room that Crowley claims it was received in. Maybe it was received on the back of the camel. <laughs> on the back of a camel, you know, traveling through uh, the Sahara Desert. If we throw out the only available evidence, because we know that Crowley sometimes lies, then everything becomes a possibility. Mm-hmm. But everything is a possibility. It means you can't assert anything. <laughs> you, <laughs> exactly, you know, yeah. You know, there's n- there's uh, the, the only evidence are in those three places that I mentioned. And if one of these people comes to me and said, like, look, I'm sorry I avoided your question. I was mad at you because you were being a little bitch. And <laughs> frankly, I was. It's like, I didn't think you deserved the time of day. You're you're a fuck. It's like, I, 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 yes, I was being a little bit cantankerous. I give you that. And if they produce the evidence, then I'll read the evidence. Like, maybe she dictated the book of the law. No one has cited any evidence to back up that assertion. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Have you, have, <laughs> uh, your your turn. Have you listened back to back to any of it since we uh, since we did the initial? Recordings? Yeah, and by God, yeah, I'm not that angry. About it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I managed. I mean, we kind of did this short notice because uh, um, we were we were kind of thinking about doing it in a couple of weeks, I guess, or some mm-hmm. vague future point but the way that things work with this podcast is we exist in a pocket just outside of time so things kind of fold in weird ways um there'll be a big probably a big gap between uh seasons between season two and three but to us that will not exist so uh this is a very ambiguous sort of thing that we're dealing with here so anyway we only ended up why does that sound right to me (laughs) (laughs) nothing you just said makes any sense and i'm just 100 percent here that's correct that's how it works exactly yes so um so we only actually had a couple of days to listen back i did listen back to a couple of episodes and what did you hear well, I was listening to um, I, I I listened back to the Equinox of the Gods chapter seven that we did, mm-hmm. which was uh, uh, fun to listen back to. I uh, mainly went back to some of the early ones. I went to that in Reguli uh, because of the fact that these were. I think I'd listened to the Book of the Law introduction one a couple of times already previously, and uh, the Ahad stuff is a little more recent. So I went with the stuff that was less immediate to me that regular so because we've been doing the akkad stuff so much i was starting to feel kind of a little bit down because mm. <laughs> <laughs> the akkad stuff is is difficult to treat and i wasn't i was gonna maybe i kind of maybe had a bad attitude about this whole season yeah that regular episode might be our best episode yeah i agree it was really we're good. We're, we're funny <laughs> and we're insightful and uh and we get really we follow the argument and we get really, really uh, pretty deep. And despite my, I'd say about four times, I'm not sure if anyone can follow this. I think it's 
more coherent than the yeah, stuff you didn't we've realize done since what was then. to come yeah that's the thing <laughs> uh uh i yeah the regular the regular episode is so good and of the texts we've treated it's the one i'm most likely to go back to because mm-hmm. i feel like there's more available yeah you know that even though we we did such a a good job with it. I feel like the Crowley's writing is so sophisticated. There's much, much more to understand mm-hmm. about uh, his nuanced view of the microcosm and the macrocosm and uh, this stuff about the objectivity versus subjectivity of evil. You know, pref- I was calling it preferred versus not preferred after the uh, utilitarians. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh even even the stuff we hit hardest, I feel like I could understand it better. Whereas the Echad stuff that we we just brushed over with a feather, <laughs> you know, I I feel like there's nothing more to get out of it. Even <laughs> by, you know, even by using a toothbrush to get into the crack. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I think that's true, and I, it's nice going back to something that's a little more structured and something that is so important. I mean, the the Chad stuff is is important for what it's worth and what it's getting at and that sort of thing. It's just a lot of it. And it's very unfocused because he just values his diary entries so much that he doesn't feel the need to rework them into a... I think we got a bad... A bad... We were doing the stuff that was most relevant to Thelema and the stuff that was most important in his relationship with Crowley. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that does Ahad a bit of a disservice. I think there's a trilogy of writings there from uh, QBL, the Egyptian revival, and what's the last one called? Anatomy of the Body of God. Mm-hmm. Um, that instead of reading like appendixes and correspondence, that we'd get a better sense of his public face if we read you know the first two or three chapters of of each of those books because i think they they start with the basics of kabbalah and then it's the basics of his revised kabbalah and then anatomy of a body of god reads like almost like Eliphas levi's kabbalistic writings like um mm. uh the stuff he does on the I think there's a book on Revelation, and what's the other one? Anyway, they're very, very nuanced. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the Anatomy of the Body of God goes very, very deep. The problem is it's his revised system, which makes nonsense. It's just going to be useless to anyone because there's nobody who uses it. (laughs) And and, uh, changing the colors in the rooms, you know, just because you like it better, you know. Everyone's used to it looking the same way. So. Yeah, I mean, with uh, just for listeners' sake, uh, the uh, the Kabbalistic tree of life and and everything that we use in Hermetic Kabbalah, we can think of as being your language set that you're using for mm-hmm. communicating with spirits, communicating with other occultists, communicating with yourself. But when you're yeah, when you start changing the language rules then that's where, yeah, it kind of gets disconnected. If you're the only one using that language set, who are you talking to? I mean, you can make arguments for a Chad's system, uh, and I think I would say maybe it would be neat to think of it as uh, the initial, the way that you learn sort of the Golden Dawn sort of correspondences and everything like that, uh, or Crowley's adapted 
slightly adapted versions of that. Uh, that's a really good starting point for things, and maybe a Chad system is good for when you're at a different viewpoint, a different standpoint on things, where you can utilize it in a useful way. But coming at it as a beginner, I think, yeah, like you say, it's like you're, you're, he's the only one using that system. So He keeps calling it the third order tree of life. And so I wonder if there's a way in which he was imagining, you know, going through all the grades again as a member of the third order using this revised tree. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to be what he was, what he thought he was doing, right? Like, Ipsissimus is just neophyte of Mm -hmm. maybe his new, you know, because he... He reverses the the one ten to ten the ten one to one ten again. Uh, so yeah. anyway, it's it's very very frustrating. I think I said this last month, but like what I want to do is give the most charitable possible reading, uh, which means an internally internal reading. You know, mm-hmm. see what's internally consistent and how you defend your ideas. Yeah. And, you know, this is true because this is true as far as you're concerned. Yeah. And with Parsons, that was very, very available. And with Crowley, it's very, very available. But with, at least with the, the excerpts we read from Ahad, it's, nothing stacks. It's just like, it's just like a factoid with no defense, another factoid with virtually no defense. And then 10 pages later, new factoids that revise previous mm. factoids. It's not, it's not a defense of the old stuff. It's, 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 it's like, okay, maybe I was wrong. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe I, I was incorrect to assert this position with no justification so i'm going to assert this other position <laughs> with no with justification, no justification. <laughs> yeah this very, is very very frustrating you know what this is a pretty um i feel like this is a great microcosm for looking at just occult people you know because this is what you end up with you end up with uh you end up with some people who are really keeners who seem to get it in a the right way or get it in a consistent way that seems to be self-contained and self-consistent and that sort of thing. So you've got like Crowley, you've got Keeners who are really, really uh, like Jack Parsons who are, you know, I mean, maybe he's a little too uh, excited about things and that sort of thing. Like it sounds like a lot of the magic that he was doing was just sort of a hodgepodge of ideas and stuff like that. And yet... He's still speaking in a very intelligent way about things, and he's still got great ideas, and his um, his goals seem to make sense and that sort of thing. But then you get a whole lot of people out there who are just like more like a chad in the sense of what you're saying, where it's factoids. It's a lot of yeah. knowledge without actually the understanding or the wisdom to uh, use it in any useful way. On the on the Parsons material, I've been doing very light, very light. Uh, I don't want to make any claims to have understood anything, but very light sort of history reading and listening lately, trying, you know, just like looking for the Wikipedia on things. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the, the way Parsons conceives of the Aeon of Isis, right? We were saying that for Crowley, it's a matriarchal age, 
And for Parsons, it's an age of equality where men rule and women are priests. Mm-hmm. And so I was, uh, I was Googling dominant civilizations from 500 BC to 2500 BC. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, had a very hard time finding female heads of state. Mm-hmm. You know, Bronze Age Greece is fairly patriarchal. Possibly the worst time and place in history to be a woman, actually, Bronze mm-hmm. Age Greece. The Vedic civilizations are seem to be fairly patriarchal. Egypt, 4,000 years of, you know, ancient Egypt, uh, 11 female rulers. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and some of those short reigns, some of those you know, contested, like maybe she was really a man. Uh, uh, but, uh, but in all of those civilizations, uh, traditions of female priests, you mm. know, and uh, even in Greece, you know, the worst time and place in history to be a woman, the Sibyl, the Sibylline oracles are very, very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, um, the Pythagorean, Pythagorean, the uh, Del- Delphic or. Delphic Oracle, very, very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, in Egypt, uh, you know, we have uh, fem- f- priests of female gods are often female, you know, and so uh, so Parsons is not far off. Indo-European civilizations do seem to be, in the way he describes, male heads of state and female priests. Also, lots of male priests, but the 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 power of the female priesthood is very unique until say the the christian era mm-hmm. um now uh i haven't been able to figure this out but there's a couple of veiled references i've heard to maybe indo-mediterranean civilizations that were truly matriarchal mm-hmm. and that they maybe had a snake deity or something like that and so when akkad says that um Typhon is the is the primordial mother. Uh, maybe the reason that um, that thunder heroes always destroy water dragons is that the Proto Indo Europeans came up in conflict with Proto Indo Mediterraneans. Mm-hmm. You know the matriarchal versus patriarchal conflict, and yeah. the the snake. The snake versus the sky god or something like that. So when Akkad says, you know, that Typhoon was the great mother, um, he, that might not be the, the disaster that I thought it was, <laughs> was at the, at the time. In, there's a story that I, I heard in like long time ago about how um, the Delphic Oracle, the Oracle of, uh, of Apollo, Apollo had to kill a python. Uh, in order to in order to take over that cave and be, become the the god of prophecy, and the um, the high priestess of Apollo who gives the oracles is called the Pythia, which uh, the etymology is about the sort of sweet rotten smell of the fermenting snake. Mm. Uh, um, so she's the fumes from the decomposing python, <laughs> and. Uh, 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 which is amazing. Anyway, the, so, you know, uh, I, this is all stuff that I had kind of heard back in the 90s mm-hmm. as sort of like pop bullshit. <laughs> but as I'm, as I'm doing uh, 
research on sort of the Proto-Indo-European culture and stuff like this and, you know, reading a, a, a couple of books and watching YouTube videos from people who seem to know things, they're making glancing references to this same thing. So I haven't been able to verify these claims in a meaningful way, but I just thought it was interesting that these ideas are still percolating out there and that the, we're, we're not lost in our search for a, a matriarchal age mm. of ISIS. Uh, although what's historically attested is much, much more like um, what Parsons gives us in his freedom mm. as a two-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want to do listener feedback? Yeah, let's uh, let's take a look at some comments, shall we? So yeah, we were talking about the idea of potentially doing some comment responses, and particularly mm-hmm. with the idea that doing uh, responses to negative comments would be interesting and fun. <laughs> <laughs> and by interesting, I mean a laugh. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I I did mention how some of them are just baffling to me. So right. I'm kind of curious to read some things just, you know, I'm just going to read through. There might be a few on here that I didn't bother with because they're just, you know, great podcaster, you know. I got basically the ones that I thought might be interesting to throw in there. I didn't get a chance to run through and edit them, so I can always edit them out if we decide to. But um, Okay. Uh, and I'll, I'll just start reading them in order, I guess. We'll go from okay. there. So on YouTube... Well, this is an Edward Mason one. This is an Edward Mason episode on the Book of the Law doesn't care what you think, but I thought these, this was uh, <laughs> kind of interesting anyway. It was just a short video from a longer talk, uh, and of course, the Book of the Law doesn't care what you think is a bit of a clickbaity title, of course. That's the whole sure. point of it. But at the same time, the Book of the Law doesn't care what you think. And I said the Book of the Law because if I said I was doesn't care what you think, that doesn't mean as much. You know, it's not as immediate, but I figured, you know, it makes sense to say the book of the law doesn't care what you think because most intelligent people can kind of grasp what the meaning of that is. Uh, I was wrong, but, uh, uh, um, but the, the, the particular comment that first comes up here is, uh, I think referring to, I was talking about Buddhists, uh, the Buddhist mentality of the idea of rafts. You use okay. a, an idea as a raft that gets you past a certain river, and then you can let go of the raft and move on. And uh, so you don't need to be carrying all your rafts with you. And this is kind of like how concepts can work for you, you know? You have a conceptualization of something, or you have a way of working with things, or what have you. you use that as a raft to get you where you need to go, and then you can let go of it and move on, which I think okay. is a really nice image. Um, somebody had commented, this is a Sarah Nokomis. 3769 um, says, At moksha, all waters of karma, of fabrication of mind are released. There's no raft anymore. No need for the raft. No arising to the raft. No raft falling away. And then followed it up with uh, her comment, Where's my Versace? Okay. Yeah. I find, no, uh, so people like to speculate about what a deep meditative state would be like. Uh, They don't always know they're speculating. Sometimes they've done a certain amount of meditation and gotten as deep as they have ever gone, you know, had this kind of uh, real, a, a real sense of some kind of different mentality. You know, and so so uh, when they talk about deep meditative states, 
they just describe their own experience and mm-hmm. you know often that's informed by the kinds of books they've been reading you know oh yeah he's and 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 when she says there's no raft anymore i assume she means something like uh what we talk about in crossing the abyss where you know you have to abandon your experiences your personality your adeptship your name your mm-hmm. uh aspirations um your goals and and uh everything that is meaningfully you ceases to exist. The problem with people trying to tell you stuff like that (laughs) is that they don't know. (laughs) I mean, it does. How many masters of the temple we got? Yeah. Well, apparently, uh, (laughs) careful about asking (laughs) that. Maybe a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, it's not a rally. Like I'm not inviting people to my, I'm not inviting all the masters of of the temple. Can I get a what what from Thursday? (laughs) (laughs) But, but, but yeah, the focus, like what we did with our um, Asana Pranayama episode, where we just sort of tried to say what Crowley said (laughs) about, you know, how best to begin practice. Uh, it's much, much more useful than speculating about what these, what the high, yeah, what the high goals would be, you know. And and for you to say that, like, yeah, you can have a, um, you can have a convenient idea for a little while, and then let it go when it no longer serves you, you know. I mean, that's okay. That's an okay thing to say. And then for someone else to come along and go, like, you know, <laughs> there really are no ideas. <laughs> so that might be that you know that that might be true to some extent what are we talking about yeah <laughs> what's what's about what is the value in having this well that's the problem i think is that that's the difficulty of these kinds of comments is that it's like you know in reading it aloud it actually makes more sense than i thought it did because when i was just reading it on the screen it just seemed like word salad to me but so i kind of get what's going on there and it does track with the idea with uh like if you meet the buddha along the road then kill the buddha because that's mm-hmm. a concept and it's not actually what you're looking for but uh yeah just dropping these sort of statements is always a little bit like somebody's telling you what to think or something like that but it's probably more an expression of their own feeling of their own insight and that sort of thing but it's not necessarily really doing anything for a conversation about anything per se yeah i think it's people trying to sound uh should i be trying to alienate our readers on purpose (laughs) i know that's the problem we don't know if we want to just you know i appreciate your listening and uh, and I don't see your comment as a negative comment. I don't see it as a criticism. Uh, I you know I I uh, if you're if you're meditating regularly and having these kinds of results, you know, go f- keep keep doing it. But uh, a lot, you know, I don't know anything about you. What's your name? Uh, Sarah Nokomis sixty I, I, I don't know any I don't know anything about you, Sarah, so keep at it. <laughs> but like the kinds of people who usually leave these kinds of comments are just trying to sound spooky on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> they just want they just That's want the people to think their own their own spooky thing, you know, without mm. reference to anything else is the real spooky thing. And speaking you know? of uh you know, just sort of dropping uh what somebody perceives as a truth bomb and then not really backing it up with anything. Uh, the next comment is from on our Jack Parsons on censorship. It's a little clip from our discussion on Jack Parsons where he's talking about go figures censorship. Uh, and 
Prism Genesis says, I can't speak to everything else, but yikes, your understanding of Nietzsche's critique of altruism is extremely shallow and off point. Uh, yeah, so if someone really knows something about Nietzsche, uh, feel free to share it. Like yeah. I said, I only read a couple of little books. I'm, I understand the Crowley version of this uh, much better than I understand the Nietzsche version of this. So if you have a deep understanding of Nietzsche's critique of altruism, then, uh, then yeah, feel free to share it. If you write us an insightful letter, I'll read it on the, on the podcast. Again, like... It's just an accusation. Just drop, when people just drop stuff like this without explaining themselves, it's very difficult to evaluate the critique, right? Like when you talk, when you, when you critique, say, democracy say, uh, altruism, when you talk about um, radical freedom, people get defensive and, and you, you know, they want to they, they wanna just tell you that you misunderstand. Yeah. And I am open to misunderstanding. If someone, if it, we've talked before about our credentials, we both went to art school. Mm. So if, if, a, if a philosophy grad wants to tell me what contemporary philosophy people think of Nietzsche, I mean, the only philosophy person who's ever like caught me reading Nietzsche and got offended said, "Very smart people disagree with what this means about what this means." Yeah. So you know, my read might be shallow. Feel free to totally feel free to complicate it for me. Yeah, and that's that's my criticism here of this comment is just the fact that it's it's just an accusation, and as such, it's not backing itself up in any way. It's just flinging shit when it comes down. A to lot it. of people. People uh, will say of uh, stuff from the book of the law that it means the opposite of what it looks like it means, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because they don't like what it looks like it yeah, means. Yeah. So when they're, when they, they make an attempt to nuance it or, or when they, they pretend they're nuancing it, when what they're really doing is radically changing the meaning. <laughs> uh, and so that's one of the kinds of things I would worry about. If someone were to say, you know, you don't understand Nietzsche, I don't understand Nietzsche. Do you understand Nietzsche? Or are you just reflexively trying to escape from something dangerous that Nietzsche said? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in this case, like the idea of altruism, uh, Nietzsche's uh, interpretation of altruism. Yeah, that's very like exactly what you're talking about. It could very well just be this person saying... Everybody thinks Nietzsche was against altruism, but actually he was totally for it. Uh, for all we know, that's what they're implying. Or, you know, who knows what else? Because we can only infer. We can't, we can't, they're not actually giving us anything about what we're wrong exactly, what way we're wrong about it, except that we're shallow about it. Yeah. I mean, the idea that charity tends to enslave the recipient of charity. I'm pretty sure, and again, it's been a couple of years since I looked at it, but I'm pretty sure that's a, a fairly mm-hmm. sound interpretation of stuff that happens in uh, genealogy of morality. So. And that's the problem, I think, with uh, Nietzsche in particular. It feels like the easiest thing in the world is to accuse somebody of not understanding Nietzsche properly. You know, If you want to downplay or dismiss their opinion on it, you can just say, well, you don't understand Nietzsche properly. And if you yeah. don't back that up with anything, then it's meaningless. It's just an accusation. I mean, what matters to me is uh, what what Crowley thought 
of the not that's not really true because if if Nietzsche is a, a a prophet of Thelema, then what he says has independent value. He's not just uh, an antecedent of Crowley's. Mm-hmm. So I was going to say what's important to me is what Crowley thinks of Nietzsche. Yeah. But Crowley doesn't really talk about Nietzsche very much. It's true. He yeah. sort of makes unsighted <laughs> reference, right? I think like, the problem is that um, it's true that Nietzsche tends to appeal to adolescent males who, you know, have adolescent male angst. And so it's probably pretty reactionary to assume that when somebody's speaking of Nietzschean philosophy, that's their go-to, you know, that kind of attitude about it. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm an adolescent in terms of my study of philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't been doing it since I was 13. I'm 42 and I've been doing it since I was 35. Hmm. So if, uh, and uh, I'm cantankerous, <laughs> like I'm willing to admit that what appeals to me is uh, into in some degree at least his cantankerousness. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll, I'll I'll yeah sure I have a shallow read of Nietzsche fine. <laughs> <laughs> He's and then I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing to back up the accusation, and there doesn't need to be anything to back up the defense, frankly. But. <laughs> Okay, well, let's move on. So here's a positive one Uh, on our, this is going back to the first season again, but uh, on our, uh, we only have so many comments, so this is why I'm not like doing only strictly from season two, but uh, on our uh, episode on eight lectures on yoga with the chapter on asana and pranayama, LOL cat yo 3649, I've heard people actually (laughs) saying these these names on in full on 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 the internet, so I'm just going to do it too to be popular. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you want to uh, give credit where credit is due. If exactly. somebody cares about their comment, they'll want their yeah. Hundred years be- from now, people are going to remember LOL cat yo thirty six forty nine and uh, their their <laughs> moniker. I'm hopefully they're you know they have a real name, but. Um, they said uh, of our episode on asana and pranayama, this was excellent. The asana is such a hardcore skill to develop. It's really useful to hear the experiences of others here, and is encouraging, which is nice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was the, the whole idea behind that episode too. Was you know being able to share ideas and experiences rather than just sort of telling people how to think about things or anything like that. I was listening to. Um, uh, an old episode of the Lima coast to coast. Mm-hmm. And they had, they had someone giving feedback on, they, I guess they discussed magic and theory and practice book one yoga, which is the title of the book, book one yoga. And someone said, gave the feedback on that episode saying, you know, you missed the mark. Like I would have liked to hear someone talk about the absurdity of Crowley's claims uh, about the practice of Asana. <laughs> and uh, I, re- I went back and I read the first chapter of Magic and Theory and Practice, Book One Yoga, recently. And I don't think there's anything absurd about Crowley's claims about a, a, a sauna. Yeah. And that's... somewhere he says, uh, you must learn to sit absolutely still with every muscle tense for a long time. And that's a little bit not exactly what it's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he doesn't say that in chapter one. He says, describing the feeling of posture is very difficult Hmm. and you know so i don't think there's you know i think you do you sit still the pain comes 
you endure the pain, <laughs> you know, like, uh, um, he's very good at, at, at writing about yoga and people who are interested in a meditation practice should read his very, very brief and very helpful writings on yoga. That kind of comment is the kind of comment that I, I expect on the internet is just basically somebody saying, you've missed the mark because you're not describing my opinion. That's basically what that comes down to. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Lolcat. I'm glad it helped. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on our um, episode of Jack Parsons, um, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, Nordoflob Squibble 3121. This is part of the reason I want to read these names as well, is just to hear my own voice saying these ridiculous things. Uh, says, I suspect Jack Parsons is referring generally to where the attention of men and women are directed. Representation is a matter of individual desire. Men and women generally are drawn to different fields and different numbers regardless of what was considered morally acceptable then. In, this, in his time, he would not have thought twice about these things. He is not placing them in these roles. More often, they are drawn to these roles. Just remove the societal strictures. We can see that even in modern society, more likely being drawn to roles that require nurturing. Not a rule, and definitely has exceptions, but generalities make conversation concerning complex topics possible. Yeah, so uh, what's going on is that you're a gender essentialist. You think that being born a woman means something specific. And I'm I'm not sure that I do think that I think I uh, I think that um, uh, well the other the other feminist that I was talking about during that episode is um, who was contemporary with Jack Parsons. So saying nobody of that time thought twice about this is not exactly correct. The other feminist I mentioned in that piece was Simone de Beauvoir, who famously says one is not born but becomes a woman. And so when I was complaining about Parsons' idea of like of, of of placing people in in societal roles, you know, like that men should do politics and women should do religion, because that's his position, I think, then it does it it, it obstructs women from doing politics. Mm-hmm. And if you think women are unlikely to want to do politics, maybe that's okay. But I mean, also, you said there's exceptions to those rules, and those we, you know, if if a woman wants to do politics, then 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 those desires could be honored, you know. Uh, whereas I'm not sure if if Jack is leaving a, a window open for that. I mean, we just I just it's lucky that I was talking about this because in the age of ISIS that he harkens back to, and again he thinks the age of the aeon of of Horus is going to be not. A new thing. He thinks we're going back to a time of gender parity, very much like what happened in the Aeon of Isis. The Aeon of Isis, there were no female heads of state. Like in Egypt, we're talking about 11 in 4,000 years. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and if you think that's just because women kind of didn't want to, I'm not sure that. I'm not sure that <laughs> whether you're gender essentialist or not, I'm not sure that's correct. And uh, to be to be fair. The Thelemic position is one of essentialism about just about everything. Hmm. You know, your your condition is determined by by factors that predate your birth. You know, you you've being reincarnated 
And so you've, you've chosen to be incarnated in this life based on what, what you think you need and you're bringing baggage with you from previous lives. So, um, your race, your social class, your gender, your economic condition, your nationality, all those things are things that, that really mean something about who you're going to be. And then also you have a lot of baggage with you that you're bringing from past lives. So, so, uh, um, Thelema is radically deterministic and, and I think pretty essentialist because when you're looking for your true will, you're looking for who you essentially are. Uh, the counter to that is that Crowley says less than 1% of 1% of our DNA determines whether we'll be uh, male or female. I think she, he says Sandra or Alexander. Uh, and and uh, less than 1% of 1% of our decision-making process informs whether we will choose the more masculine or the more feminine option in any given moment. So uh, um, maybe Crowley is less essentialistic about gender than he is about other things. And and my position on philosophical matters changes uh, fairly frequently. But uh, at the time, I was looking at the Parsons, Parsons thing and, and noting what you're noting, that Parsons is a gender essentialist and he believes women belong in the priesthood, not in politics. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, and I was saying, I think that's problematic. And, and if you think, no, no, that's just naturally how women are, then you just agree with Jack and I don't. It's fine. Yeah, and I think this, this idea that uh, women are more prone to nurturing type roles and stuff like that, that might be useful for taking statistics and maybe watching marketing trends and stuff like that. But in Thelema we're really concerned with the individual so that's a problem right okay great yeah because if Thelema is about cultivating uh cultivating individuals then this uh, then then classifying doing this uh sociological problem where we're classifying individuals and seeing what people of different social classes different different sexes different you know what what they might most be most likely to prefer you stop dealing with them as individuals. Mm -hmm. And so saying there may be some exceptions doesn't cover it. Yeah. My job, you know, as your AA supervisor, possibly if I ever get that far enough in my AA work, <laughs> uh, is to worry about you, uh, not about how you best express your, how, how you uh, represent this group that you're suddenly an, an emissary of, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and part of the another part of the problem is that Crowley says that uh, any class, when taken as a class, will inevitably have more defects than qualities. Mm -hmm. And uh, and as soon as you begin to group men together, they fall below the worst traits of the worst member. Mm -hmm. And they begin so criticizing that, each other's hats. Yeah. So saying that women tend to be apolitical and more nurturing and that for a number of reasons they don't belong in government you know i mean if you start grouping men together you might start saying oh they you know you you might you might think of them as being uh unfit for government for different reasons you know yeah. <laughs> because uh because only one person can be a head of state at a time uh, unless you have a roman triumvirate or something but we're looking for the best individuals not for uh not for not we're not uh it's less important to organize by social class. Uh, Crowley says, true will is very much like uh, Hitler's Aaron folk. 
except there's no folk about it. He means master race, but not race. There's no race that's better than any other race. We're looking for individual masters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's weird that he name drops Hitler like that, eh? <laughs> someday we'll do a episode on Crowley and Hitler because it's fucking nuts <laughs> he he's the one you know there's a rumor that Hitler had the uh, had the book of the law in his nightstand mm-hmm. uh, it's not true it can't possibly be true because what's her name Martha Kunzel was supposed to have given Hitler the book of the law when he was in prison mm-hmm. but on the date when she would have given it to him Hitler was not in prison so he never had the book of the law uh, and it's Crowley who started that rumor. Oh, nice. <laughs> he wanted people to think <laughs> that he was inspired by Ptolemaic principles uh, up to a point. I mean, he wasn't. Yeah, uh, there, there came a yeah, point when that changed. There, you know, he, he's, uh, he comes down with England when the war, you yeah. know, on, uh, on the war, but. Uh, well, I mean, uh, that's a legitimate thing to to uh, emphasize there, too, because it's like before we were working our way up to the war, uh, World War II, um, there was all kinds of ambiguity about where things fell and all that sort of thing. And, of course, trying to influence powerful people was something that Crowley did across the board. He sent stuff to Henry Ford. Uh, Thomas Edison, all these people, but people haven't. Uh, people like to cherry pick little things from different times and assume it works across the board. The biggest, uh, most common one, I think, with Crowley is um, his publication of Mather's translation of the Goetia, uh, where mm-hmm. Crowley has an introduction. And he's talking about the ceremonial. Uh, in the initiated interpretation of ceremonial magic, and he's describing the goetic demons or spirits as parts of the brain, and he's got a very materialistic kind of uh, expression for how this works, and a very psychological model kind of expression for how how this kind of stuff works, which um, occasionally gets you know brought up as an example of this kind of thing, where it's like he had that opinion. This is before the Book of the Law. And, you know, before the reception of the Book of the Law, he was going into a very um, almost a magical state where he was very Buddhistic, but very nihilistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not his excuse for being a fan of Hitler, because we're 40 years too early. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Nothing to do with the Hitler uh, thing. Yeah, lots lots of people in England were curious about the rise of National Socialism and thought that, uh, you know, noticed that it was a powerful movement and may have had Nazi sympathies. There's members of the royal family that did. Uh, anyway, it's bad scene. Mm-hmm. It's a bad scene. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, people who are modern thelemates need to need to confront this stuff and think about what they think about it, because, uh, you know, it's not, uh, there's not, there's not one picture I mean, maybe if there's one picture, but it's it's not a very attractive picture. Mm-hmm. Crowley isn't. Crowley's the best writer. But I keep saying Crowley's the best English language writer on yoga, even down to today. It's not an evaluation of his character. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking means of means there's uh, a couple of good, couple hundred pages of good books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We uh, speaking of uh, um, representations of character, I think it was on the same same uh, episode that. Uh, W.R. Wilson 262 commented, his name was Idi Amin. 
which is actually in reference to something I was saying. No, it, it's not a mistake uh, where he's trying to say his name was Robert Paulson. Uh, he was referring to something that I was talking about in that episode where um, I was referring to some African king who uh, idolized oh. Napoleon and, and all this sort of thing. And he ended up like doing horrible things to his own people. And uh, so he, I guess he was a Ugandan dictator and uh, his name was Idi Amin. So that's Edie Amin. Let me Google that real quick. That's very helpful. Thank you. Edie Amin. Oh, wow. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I have something to... Yeah. Oh, it is him. I was wondering. I didn't want to say, but it looks like maybe The Last King of Scotland, which is a great movie. Oh, is it? Yeah. Holy smokes, is it good. good. Is that him? Anyway, we'll... Uh, yeah, Forrest Whitaker plays Idi Amin. So, mm. uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's that's who I thought you meant. Mm-hmm. Uh, except, but I didn't know his name either. So, uh, thank you very much for uh, thank you very much for the for the citation. Yes, thank you, W. R. Wilson, two sixty two. Okay, and on Reddit, uh, so those are all our YouTube comments that I, I pulled um, on Reddit for Lieber thirty one, uh, Achad's Lieber thirty one. The Florida Keys kid commented, Crowley Sickos. Yep. So uh, <laughs> that's that. Um, again, just an Do you mean sicko as in we're, are we gross or are we sycophants? I'm assuming it's uh, probably uh, somebody, because there's all these horrible uh, people out there who uh, try to accuse people of uh, horrible shit. Just like the, you know, Catholic priests get painted with the same brush and that sort of thing. So there's like oh, I see. people yeah. fleeing. I know there's like this whole movement of uh, people who are throwing hate at anyone uh, calling themselves Luciferians. And um, it's not my business, but uh, it does sound like there's a specific accusation going on there. And I think it spills over to Thelemites as well, which is, uh, again, it's in it, 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 certainly for Thelema, it's completely baseless. But uh, it's, you know, one of those accusations that's out there. Well, look, uh, again, this is a, the Kenneth Grant edited Diary of the Great Beast 666. I said a couple of times this season that I, I I think of the Kefalu period as being sort of Crowley's tantric period, where he's trying to get into just all the most horrible things, like shit-eating and worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there's the story about someone getting poisoned by cat's blood and dying and Layla getting uh, fucked by a goat. And uh, I haven't gone through all the diaries and read them, so I don't want to do an episode about this yet. But I think Leia's diaries might even be available somewhere, mm-hmm. and maybe not in print, but you might be able to get access to them. Uh, and the diaries of certain other initiates. I have some of um, Jane Wolfe's diaries made available by David Shoemaker. And so you can, you can, unlike the reception of the Book of the Law, there's more than one account, more than one eyewitness account of what went on at Kefalu. And I think the goat sex did happen, and I think the cat blood did happen. And uh, there's things that Crowley claims in his own diaries from the period that are even more upsetting than these, these events. Uh, what I will say is that the prophet, like I, I said, it is, is, it's not, it's a bad dude sometimes. The prophet <laughs> is not, uh, always a person to be idolized. And, uh, and most modern Thelemites don't undertake these practices. 
although I there has been at least in the last 20 years at least one person who claimed to be a thelemite who uh, went viral on YouTube for sacrificing goats and drinking blood and then uh, ran for senator in Florida oh, that I think guy, yeah so uh, so yeah if so what's this guy's name Florida Keys man yeah yeah so if he knows or the Florida Keys uh, kid yeah if the Florida Keys kid knows of our dubious colleague uh then then yeah no yeah it's it's uh it's 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 not always sunny you know <laughs> uh i mean the we we aren't there's no papers anywhere that i've read on the correct way to sacrifice goats um there are papers that i've read on how to correctly torture a pregnant woman so that her child is born as an elemental spirit and papers on how to martyr frogs to get cool, familiar spirits. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I don't know how many Thelemites are undertaking these practices. I'm not currently. Mm -hmm. Darren's not. <laughs> I have no history of this stuff. But yeah, Crowley Sicko's fine. I thought he meant sycophants, maybe, in that we were being doesn't look uh, like it. Pro Crowley and anti Achad a little <laughs> bit. Um but yeah, no, there's bad stuff. There's bad stuff in Thelema and I'm not uh, ashamed to point at it. Because <laughs> uh, I think uh I think if we if we pretend it isn't there, then there is a way in which all Catholic priests are implicated, right? Mm -hmm. I mean these people molest children and then instead of being turned over to the state, they're moved to another ward. Yeah. And nobody talks about it. Yeah. You got to talk about it. Fair enough. Yeah. So we're not going to get... Have we got another comments? Yeah, we haven't got... Uh, we're not going to get through all of them, but uh, I'll see if I can just pick out one or two. So we've got, uh, on the Book of the Law doesn't care what you believe. I just wanted to quickly mention the one comment was Simagus or C Magus. I think it's supposed to be a Simon Magus sort of mashed up. Oh, okay. They say, uh, if, if I could give an award, I would. And so oh. <laughs> that's a nice one. But the, uh, yeah, the one in question, I feel rewarded. Thank you. <laughs> the other one was profit 418. The book of the law can't care about anything. It's a book, but its author obviously does based on statements contained within that are ignored in the video. I was hoping you were going to get to this one. So I think you, maybe you answer this because you, you know what you meant. What does it mean to say the book of the law doesn't care what you think? Um, it's shorthand for, uh, I was, isn't speaking with any concern as to, uh, what your feelings are about what, uh, what is in the book of the law. So as we've talked about before, uh, Crowley in, uh, magic without tears says, for instance, Sure, you disagree with Iwas. We all do. But the problem is he's not arguing. He's telling you. Right. Um, People don't I, have to listen to every single episode of the show, and they don't have to take pay like full mind attention, and they don't have to take notes while they're doing it. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, like we're just we're just jackasses flapping <laughs> our gums. So the fact that I already said that. <laughs> you know you didn't you didn't notice right <laughs> not you darren i'm yelling at the commenter <laughs> like i i i i brought up that quote you know several episodes ago so you should have all been really primed with that information no i mean like read the texts right like Crowley does have opinions and he does want 
certain things from his readers, one of those things is to be read by them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, see if you can find that quote. See well, if yeah. you can find the quote there and read. I mean, the the uh, the fact of the matter is, though, uh, the person saying the book of the law can't care about anything. It's a book. Okay, A, that's just asinine. It's trying to be snarky. Uh, it's meaningless because I'm not so stupid as to make a title that, you know, anyway. Uh, it's over-emphasizing that. Um, but its author obviously does based on statements contained within the book that are ignored in the video. So the author of the book of the law does care what people think based on statements contained in it that we didn't address in the video. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't bother to, you know, bring those up or anything like that. And uh, the problem I have with that is that it's like the author is kind of uh, left. Is it I was you're talking about as the author? Because that's who Crowley claims was the author. Oft, often when people care very deeply about something, they use the retort, I don't care what you think. <laughs> Because they believe they're right. The book of the law is not a document that you are in conversation with. You listen to it and, and, and you know, try to be affected by what it says. That's what's, in, that's what's important about this. Uh, you know, and, and you might be in conversation with it in the sense that you misunderstand it. Then you ask it questions. And then, you know, it clarifies itself. You can read more deeply and more deeply and more deeply. But your opinions don't change the meaning of the text. It, mm. it, 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 uh, and you can read, uh, uh, all questions are the, uh, of the law are to be satisfied with appeal to my writings, each for himself. Not each for himself with appeal to my writings, but you start with appeal to the writings of the mm-hmm. prophet. You try to understand what he's saying, and those resolve the questions of the law. You, you, you don't, you know, the fact that you come to it with your cultural programming, your um, predisposition towards altruism and self-sacrifice, doesn't mean that you're allowed to say the book of the law is about altruism and self-sacrifice. <laughs> you have to read it and see what it says. Because mm. what it says is very, very important, both to Crowley and to Iowa's. And you can imagine them both defensively, ironically saying, I don't care what you think. <laughs> like, of course they care because they're, they want you to be right. They want you to agree with them so that you're right. <laughs> but either way, I think it's, yeah, I think it comes down to um, somebody reacting to a title, uh, you know, they don't, but they don't care what you think because your ideas are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they don't care about your wrong-headed ideas. Yeah, they want they, they want you to agree with them so that they can care. <laughs> okay, I want to actually end on a nice positive uh, comment just real quick, if you don't mind. Um, with our little short clip from an episode where we were talking about beginner books, Empty Sky, I think that was our last check-in, actually, maybe. Mm-hmm. But uh, Empty Sky 93 says... It's honestly refreshing to have a video like this here with all the people who come to this sub asking about where to start with Thelema. So that's nice. I feel like yeah. that's, a, that's a good feedback. Thank you. Um, no, uh, you just have to start. Like, it's hard. It's just very, very hard. And uh, books reference other books. There's no, like, entry portal that gets you straight in that summarizes all of the ideas. 
you know, I mean, magic without tears is sort of this, but because it's correspondences, it's a little, it, it there's, it has its own kind of trickiness to it. Um, magic in theory and practice it, uh, is, is clear and helpful, but it doesn't really tell you what Thelema is right away. Like you start with this explanation of yoga, which is true. And, you know, just mastering that first practice on that first page, that first practice of Asana, like, don't think you can't keep reading until you've mastered Asana because it's mm -hmm. a trip. It's a trip. Mm -hmm. um, so you just have to have to start reading and let the pieces fall into place. It's not recommending beginner books and, you know, these where to start questions are not tremendously helpful. But Magic and Theory Practice and Magic Without Tears are the beginner books, but they're hard. Yeah. They're still hard. And, yet, and they're going to refer you to other books and ask you to read other things that are even harder. So, <laughs> But yeah, so um, what do you feel like we have for the future? What do you see as like overarching subjects, for instance, and uh, maybe more specific subjects we can get into? I don't want to do a series in season three. <laughs> I'd like to do isolated pieces because doing a six episode series was hard mm -hmm. and uh and and not always interesting <laughs> you know there were things we needed to do because we needed to do them not because we were excited uh and i don't want to talk about numbers maybe ever again <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how i don't know how talking about numbers in an audio format works but just at least not for next season i'd like to focus on and peripheral figures even though there's more to do on a cod Unfortunately, there's more work that needs to be done, <laughs> and uh, and there's more to do on Jack Parsons. He has other short papers, which I'm sure you know. Based on Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, there's other pieces that could be helpful. But I just want little chunks of Crowley, like the Velreguli, mm -hmm. um, uh, that we can really munch on. Yeah, uh, for the next few. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, I think for as far as overarching ideas, um, I don't think it's that so much that um, we need to focus on them, but stuff that I'd like to see um, that looking back brought to mind, for instance, is like the subject of madness, because we had that come mm -hmm. up as a. Um, something that scares most people, but is something that's really part of the project. Uh, you know, so that's engaging. interesting. I wonder what we could read. Mm hmm. Yeah. And Dangers of mysticism? We, You know, that would be a good one. That would be a really good one for sure. But we don't even necessarily need, like I say, to try to specifically hone in on something to cover it. I think it's something mm -hmm. that'll come, we'll, just having in the back of our head, we'll find that it, it, it will ferret it out of, of probably a few places we don't think about finding it, you know? But, mm -hmm. uh, but and then there's also the, the subject of madness as far as uh, the questions of, getting you know like some of the stuff that we saw with Ahad where it's like you you can go off the rails a little bit with things and you can get okay. too obsessed with information and and the the apparent importance of information and that sort of thing and mm -hmm. whether you, you know what it looks like to go down the wrong route I'm not saying that Ahad was necessarily going down the wrong route but he did have his episode of you know stripping naked and and being thrown in a sanitarium so uh, there's that, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just as, as a general sort of thing, because madness and the idea of madness is, uh, is part and parcel of the occult one way or the other. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, people are going to call you sickos. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and sometimes you might be one. <laughs> uh, uh, what else? Um, I think uh, the idea of confidence versus hubris and versus humility is kind of an interesting one for a Thelemite because we have so oh, okay. many of these, you know, predispositions uh, to cultural mores such as like the underdog, the idea of the underdog. That was something that I grew up very strongly associating with. And um, the idea of, um, yeah, just the things that get tied up with our associations with what we perceive as ego or um, versus confidence, self-confidence, and really owning yourself like in an authentic kind of way versus uh, just being a prat. If we're going to harp on Christian ethics that are based on our altruism and self-sacrifice, maybe, uh, you know, complain about that as much as we have been, maybe looking at some alternatives. I wonder, uh, um, I just, I, again, I'm not a deeply studied philosophy person, but I wonder if something like Aristotle's virtue ethics, you know, if we can find a, mm -hmm. uh, writings on that. Uh, he's got a couple of papers on ethics, the Nicomachean Oh, yeah, Nicomachean Nic ethics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know what it's called. Nicomedian? I think. Uh, I read a little bit of that at some point and found it helpful because of the difference between professional soldiers and civilian conscripts. Elucidated some Liber L concepts. Mm -hmm. but, uh, um, but I wonder where he talks about his virtue ethic most saliently. Yeah, we'll have, I'll, I'll have to try to find something. Yeah, I think there's... Um Oh God, who's that historian? Not um, uh, Herodotus, but uh, the other one that's famously associated with Greece. Um, damn it, I'll have to look that up. But basically, there's another historian who has a little bit more of a hard-boiled approach to things and is um, he likes to point out the, uh, the kind of hypocrisies about things. Like people purport to have certain moral and ethical values, but then when the chips fall, they act in profoundly different ways. Um, mm. And so he's using that to point that out. Uh, he's, he's pointing that out in various ways and using anecdotes um, from what was to him immediate history. Um, and I think that'd be interesting to look at too, if I can find the right texts. Sure. Okay. Uh, you're making me think of Plato now, too, The Morality of Plato's Republic, uh, which I don't think is a piece I've read in its entirety and would be fun to have an excuse. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, this is all contravenes our... Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, trying my, to stay my, with the primary. This is all my, my project of getting in, of, of, of returning our attention to Crowley, but, uh, you know, it might be worth, it might, still might be worth doing because the idea, you know, there's more than one approach to ethics. Yeah. Any, any other any other big threads that want to get pulled? No, I think that's good. I mean, it would be nice to um, look at some of the AA reading material uh, in terms of mm -hmm. like the suggested readings and the required initial preliminary readings and whatnot. That can always be fun to explore as well. Let's do. Uh, uh, we've already, we're already practicing Liber Semech, and I don't want to say too much about that since that's going to be the subject of an upcoming mm -hmm. two hours. Uh, we've, we're, I, I'm going to excerpt some stuff from, uh, Magic Without Tears about, 
the three schools of magic and the black brothers uh i know which letters they are i just can't remember the numbers off the top of my head Mm -hmm. uh and then um uh and then let's look at some other chapters of the eight lectures on yoga yeah um at some point sounds good because they're easy and extremely helpful yeah yeah oh Okay. Uh, thanks very much, Darren. This was great. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's I know it was right. nice to do it on a, you know, it's a blazing hot day. It's apparently uh, we're in a worldwide record-breaking week for hot days, apparently. But uh, I've got to um, go put my son in the water and then sit in the sun by myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> time to get out the house. All right. Sounds good. All right. 93. Love is the law. Love under will. Love is the law. Love under will. Thanks for listening. Watch for Season 3 beginning in January. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. I've had uh, students do that to me where uh, we're sitting there. You know, I'm going, I'm going through some long... Uh, wordy explanation of something and then uh, I finish talking and the student goes what? <laughs> I'm just like for f- <laughs> I think I did that just for kicks uh, when we did uh, um, we've been doing these magic workshops weekly and and uh, last one was on the Kabbalah and then just for kicks he's you know going through this long explanation of the tree of life and the basics of uh, hermetic Kabbalah and that sort of thing and at the end of it I'm like uh, what? <laughs> just to use that <laughs> <laughs> yeah because He's he's definitely in on the running gag you have with your students. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> he'll he'll immediately get what it is you're driving at. Are you going to use this video for anything? What? <laughs>